This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Join the conversation and message Buck on Facebook, Instagram, or email teambuck at iheartmedia.com. He may read it on the show. Now we see who really believes the science. For a while now, there have been people running around acting like this was a personal calling card. I believe the science. And they do whatever Fauci says. Mask up between bites. Try to breathe less. Try to only breathe out of your mouth or your nose or or neither because it'll make you safer. Just hold your breath as long as you can. So what if it's uncomfortable? It's about the science. And then we see, oh, now that they have no more cover from the CDC for their hysteria, their neuroses are taking over entirely. Uh, they're not changing their tune at all. Oh, what a surprise. We also have a Biden administration that refuses to speak the truth to the Democrats in their midst and their their supporters, of course. They won't do that. They allow them to continue to live in this delusion that if only they listen to Fauci forever, everything will be better. And that's true of their approach to spending money, too, as you well know. About 20 percent of all U.S. dollars were created in the year 2020. That's right. A lot of people don't know that. What do you think the effect of all those newly printed dollars will lead to inflation, right? Well, it's certainly not going to lead to the dollar becoming more valuable in the past. People have purchased gold and silver as a hedge against inflation. That's because gold and silver have increased in value as the purchasing power of the dollar declines. Buying real gold and silver, the kind you could hold in your hands, is much easier than you think. You can have it delivered securely and privately to your home, or you can even put real gold and silver in your IRA or 401k. If you're concerned at all about the value of the dollar continuing to decrease or the risk of inflation, you got to call the Oxford Gold Group right now at 833-600-GOLD. The Oxford Gold Group is the industry leader in precious metals. They offer real gold and silver for the lowest prices, and they have a free precious metals investment guide they can send to you. The Oxford Gold Group is who you should call, 833-600-GOLD. Request their free precious metals investment guide. Again, that number, call right now, 833-600-GOLD. G-O-L-D. I think that uh, the approach here is showing Florida leading the way again, because I think there's other states that are probably going the different direction. Uh, but here are some of the highlights. The bill ensures that neither the state nor local governments can close business or keep kids out of in-person instruction unless they satisfy demanding and continuous justifications. One of the things I think has been so problematic about this is that there are different policies that have been enacted, particularly in other parts of the country, different restrictions or mandates, and they're done. And then even when the evidence refutes the effectiveness or the need or the justification for them, they continue on, and sometimes they're even re-upped. This changes that and makes sure that people are protected. It also says that any local emergency order excluding hurricane emergencies are capped at seven-day increments and may only be extended to a maximum duration of 42 days. Um, and most importantly, as governor, I'll have the authority to invalidate a local emergency order if it unnecessarily restricts individual rights uh, or liberties. Florida fighting back against COVID tyranny. God bless Ron DeSantis. This is what we need to see. This is how it needs to be. No more of what I saw in Texas, where, sure, Governor Abbott got rid of the statewide mask mandate, but Austin is still a bunch of leftist lunatics masking up, double masking outside. No more of that. 
at least not in Florida, at least not after July 1st. No vaccine passports either. Taking action now to prevent the continued neurotic tyranny of the Fauciites. It has to stop. I've been telling you this all along. It will not stop until we make it stop. And that's why you see the approach in Florida versus, say, the approach in New York, where Governor Cuomo is telling everybody in a couple of weeks, you'll have businesses at full capacity, except they're still going to have a six foot distancing rule. Well, what the heck is that? That just means that restaurants can't have all their tables. That means that you do have de facto capacity limits and you're going to have masking. So what really is better? Well, he needs to get people to stop thinking about all the sexual harassment and uh, death of senior citizens in nursing homes that occurred under his watch or as a result of his decision making. So whatever he can do now to get the news cycle focused on how he's a leader, that's what really matters. Anybody talking about what a great job Gavin Newsom has done in California? Nope. The Democrat blue states are a mess. They don't make sense anymore. What they are up to with COVID lockdowns is absurd. Oh, I also want to give credit where it is uh, where it is due. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt has said the following play four. on March 15th, 2020, I declared a state of emergency to fight against COVID-19. And over the course of the last year, I've issued dozens of executive orders to make sure we stayed proactive in our response to this virus. My promise has always been to make decisions based on the data in our state, not what's happening anywhere else. And here's what the data in Oklahoma shows. Our seven-day average of new cases is down 94% from its peak. And our new cases per capita are some of the lowest in the country. Hospitalizations, they're down 90% and they've been stable for two months. We've administered more than 2.5 million doses of the COVID vaccine. And anyone who wants one can get one. Because Oklahomans used personal responsibility to protect themselves, their families, and our most vulnerable, the data shows COVID-19 is no longer an emergency. That's why I'm withdrawing my emergency declaration effective tomorrow, Tuesday, May 4th. There we go. Notice how it is the Republican governors in red states who are looking at the actual data and numbers and recognizing that enough is enough. It's time to go back to life. Time to go back to normal. People have had who are at high risk, plenty of time to get the vaccine. We've gotten over 70% of seniors vaccinated. People have had opportunities to get vaccinated. We cannot hold society hostage until every neurotic lib in Brooklyn and Santa Monica and Northwest D.C. feels like it's safe. Does, does Fauci think it's safe for me to go outside? You'll notice you don't see this guy Osterholm on TV as much as he used to. And it's because while he is a, a lockdowner, he's not quite as insane as some of the others. He's not a Fauciite. You know, maybe we should consider that the, the numbers tell us that in anywhere from two weeks to uh, two decades, we could have a return to normalcy 
So I think that's the that's the scope of what we're working with. Two two weeks maybe or twenty years from now. You know, your, your kids, your, your really young babies. Um, maybe when they're you know in their quarter life crisis, they can at least say, "Oh, I can take my mask off now." Your Fauci's on TV every five seconds. The limbs are all so scared. Oh my gosh, Fauci will save us. Osterholm, you see a lot less of. It's because he's saying things like this that go counter the main messaging from the Biden White House. Play 10. So I think we still want to be very careful. We still have a lot of work to do. But if you're among vaccinated people, party hard, party hard. You know, invite people over to your house, do family related things, but get vaccinated. If there was ever a time to want to incentivize people to get vaccinated, it's now. Because if you do, you can basically protect yourself and have all the kind of socialization that you want to do. But if you're not vaccinated and you're out in bars and so forth, know that you still have a challenge. I have just got done dealing with two cases in the last day. Individuals, young, healthy adults who are in bars who are now the intensive care units here in Minnesota with COVID. Get vaccinated. Vaccinated and party hardy. I got to tell you. This is an enormous miss from the Biden administration. Everyone talks about, oh, look at all the shots in arms. Uh, It would be way better if people had been told you can go back to normal, but then they'd lose all the control and the fear and the panic, which is the most important thing of all to the Democrats, the control they get from this, because people would walk around and start living their lives normally. And that's how you get back to normal. But no, we have to hold... We have to hold this Trump card, pardon the expression, of until we say so, you don't get to go back to normal. Until we determine that the numbers are what we need them to be. They won't tell you that in advance. And one of the reasons that Governor DeSantis in Florida has set up his executive order the way he has is so that mayors can't play the games in Democrat strongholds they have been where they say, when we get to X, we will give you Y. And then we get to X in terms of COVID numbers and infections. Y doesn't happen. They did that to us in New York City at the beginning or at the first phase of the pandemic. We should have had gyms open all summer, basically. Kept them closed. Kept them closed. Why? Because they felt like it. Look at California. You can go to Costco. You can go to a weed store. Can you go to church, though? California says no. Based on what? The science. Only idiots ever believed that. California's uh, secular leftist government is hostile to people of actual religious faith, but they got away with it for a while. They got away with it. I mean, I give, I give credit to, uh, to Meghan McCain over on The View, who's pointing out that, yeah, this whole, this whole notion that the vaccine's not good enough isn't premised on the vaccine's real protective level. It's the neurotic libs want to be able to control everybody still. So that's why they won't let you live your life after you get the vaccine. It is psychotic, as she says. Play 19. The messaging on this is absolute garbage towards conservatives and Republicans, and it's getting worse. It's a public health crisis. I agree. We should all be vaccinated. Uh, I myself have my I am vaccinated. Uh, I, I have no problem with vaccines, but the messaging is psychotic. And I just want to say in Brookline, Massachusetts, um, they just rejected in the city the guidance to wear masks outdoors. So if you live in Brookline, Massachusetts, you have to wear a mask outdoors. If you live in Florida, the Surgeon General says you don't have to wear a mask anywhere. And a 
lot of this feels like it's more about control than science. If the vaccine is 94% effective, which, which we are told by science and the CDC and all smart people that come on the show it is, if the vaccine works, why do we still have to wear masks outdoors? Why do we have to wear masks inside? And that's also part of the messaging problem. Because if you get a vaccine and nothing in your life changes, and I still have to wear a mask everywhere, and people still have to wear masks everywhere, then, then there's not, I'm sorry, but like the way human nature works and human beings work is, is there has to be an impetus and, and, a, and a reason to get vaccinated to get what you want. And I'm horrified yeah. by the way people are talking to Republicans right now in this way. I think we should I think we should try and lead people along instead of saying they're, they're dumb right. morons in the middle of the country that are going to kill everybody. It's just not effective. Yep. But you know what's really going on here? The libs, the Biden administration, they are terrified that you who listen to this show are going to get your lives back before they've been able to fundamentally transform American society. They, they stay up awake at night, deeply concerned about the possibility that you may actually be able to, even if you haven't gotten vaccinated, just start going about your life and you're not going to infect and kill anybody. There's a lot of herd immunity already out there in the population. And this is a virus with an over 99% survival rate, as we know. And you're just going to go about living your life that they despise that notion. They hate that idea. It's not okay until it's safe enough for them. When is it safe enough? We'll look at Brookline, Massachusetts. Not even the CDC is enough for them. It's safe when they feel safe because they've been watching a lot of CNN and CNN makes it seem really, really scary to try to breathe fresh air without a mask on. That's where we are as a society. I told you that this is where we were headed. I've told you at every step, just watch. People will cling to their masks even after the authorities finally have to relent. And they haven't relented on all masks. You know what the truth is? We should have no masks for vaccinated people anywhere. I know some of you are yelling right now saying, Buck, we shouldn't have masks mandated, period. And you know that I agree with that. But that's a we lost that battle. We lost that fight. So now at least can we can we start to win some battles so we don't have to all go around? So I don't have to go in the gym on the treadmill with my mask on like an idiot. Otherwise, someone will come up to me. Excuse me, sir. Excuse me. Uh, You're on a treadmill. Where's your mask? I feel unsafe. The world is not a safe space, Libs, not from viruses, not from anything. We are all going to die. Make the best use of the time you have. Be purposeful and don't be a coward every day. That would be my advice for the Libs of Brookline. So we want to help. Our administration wants to help. We want to pick back up the kind of work President Joe Biden started when he was vice president. We want to help people find hope at home. And so we are focused on addressing both the acute factors and the root causes of migration. And I believe this is an important distinction. We must focus on both. First, the acute factors, the catastrophes that are causing people to leave right now. The hurricanes, the pandemic, the drought, and extreme food insecurity. And then there are the long-standing issues, the root causes. And I'm thinking of corruption, violence, and poverty, the lack of economic opportunity, the lack of climate adaptation and climate resilience, the lack of good governance. Just this weekend, we learned 
that the Salvadoran parliament. Kamala Harris is an, an, in, an intensely mediocre uh, public policy official in any context. Kamala Harris is a deeply unimpressive person when she speaks about these things. She's the vice president. I don't care. Donald Trump was president and liberals said that he was a fascist Nazi murderer, you know, rapist. I mean, you know, so we, we get to speak about public officials as we see fit and we get to say the truth about them. In this case, Kamala Harris is a really a mediocrity. I mean, I think she might be smarter than Joe Biden, but I also think that's not saying very much. Climate resilience is causing the surge. Um, let's just take a quick uh, a quick trip into reality land here for a moment. Illegal crossings right now at the U.S.-Mexico border are at a 20-year high. Last month, there were over 170,000 illegal aliens taken into custody. And about 1,000 people a day are gotaways, which is the Border Patrol term for somebody who just, they make a run for it. Maybe they're in a vehicle, but usually they actually run. And they made it into the U.S., and they're here a thousand a day. Oh, yeah, sure. But it's been 11 million illegals in the United States for the last 20 years. We got a thousand gotaways a day. You think there are a thousand people running across our border to the south to go live in Honduras to balance out this inflow? I don't think so. Why are people leaving uh, the Central American countries to come to America? Because this is a rich country with Rule of law, somewhat. Democrats are trying to destroy it, but we do still have it. And a very generous welfare state. And economic opportunity. That's why. Right? There are jobs here. There is welfare here. There is some safety here. We're not going to transform Honduras into a place where people are going to say, you know what? If it's a choice between this and the United States of America... I'm going to ride out this whole Honduras situation, see what's going on. If it's easy enough for them to get in the U.S., they're going to keep picking the United States. And they don't even put into this analysis, Kamala, as the border czar and the rest of them, that countries from all over the world have people coming to Mexico to cross the border legally right now. From Cuba and China and Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and Thailand and Venezuela and you name it, coming from all over the world. Why? Because America is a very wealthy country where people are relatively safe. And there is, uh, there's a lot of generous welfare benefits here for people. You say, oh, they, they, but you don't get that if you're an illegal. Really? You get in-state tuition. Uh, you get direct payments if you live in New York during COVID. If you have a child here, then that child gets all the benefits of citizenship and everything else. And you're a part of that household. There's also a lot of benefits fraud that goes on, which is almost never prosecuted unless somebody's getting rich off of it, doing really egregious fraud, you know, claiming benefits for 10 people. But if you're just doing benefits fraud as an illegal, almost never prosecuted in this country. And we also have no real sense of how often that even happens. So, yeah, that's why people are coming here. Kamala still can't seem to get to the border, though. Still can't seem to, to, to deal with this. And, and notice that the way they frame this issue, we're supposed to fix other countries to get people to stop coming into our country illegally. That's not going to change this. If we want people to stop coming into America illegally, we have 
to convince them it's not worth the effort and the risk to come to America illegally. Consequences. You come, you don't get to stay. Until that is the calculation, this continues on. All this, all this uh, nonsense about we're going to do more for root causes. Yeah, good luck with that. Honduras has one of the highest murder rates in the world, is intensely corrupt and very poor. We're going to turn that around? Sure we are. Oh, the Biden administration is going to turn that around? It's a joke. But this is just the talking point. To make it seem like they're doing something when really at the end of the day, they don't want this to end. They just want to control it. Illegals are future Democrat voters. That's the way the Biden administration, the Democrat Party sees this. Anything else is nonsense. If you grew up in the 90s, you may be familiar with an actress named Alyssa Milano. I once had the misfortune of interviewing her. She did not realize I was a conservative, and I realized that she was quite dumb by asking her very straightforward questions on the political issues that she thinks she should be weighing in on with the platform that she has. Uh, But she is speaking in this clip on that that went uh, viral on TikTok and a young black woman who goes by the handle. This is savvy response. So what you're going to hear is Alyssa Milano, uh, white liberal multimillionaire. I've been to her mansion. Yes. In her gated community just north of Los Angeles. But she really understands the plight of the black community. She really understands what it is to be black in America today. If you listen to the way she talks about this. Um, Yeah. But then a young black woman responds to her, responds to Alyssa Milano. And this is this is savvy. Again, is her handle. I want you to you're going to hear Alyssa Milano on what it's like for black men. And then this black woman responding immediately to her on social media. Play one. For those of us who are not black men, imagine watching the news and seeing how people... Imagine being a black man and being told by some white lady with a microphone that you and the criminal on TV are one and the same because you look alike. Imagine being told by society that white people can be all that they can be, but you as a black man, the content of your character is completely irrelevant. You are the color of your skin and that is all you will ever be. Imagine being told you can't figure out how to vote because of the color of your skin. Socioeconomics affects everyone, but apparently you're not as smart as the poorest white person. Lady, I don't want to hate you. I'm a 90s kid. I grew up with you, so I know you're very talented. I understand your heart is in the right place, but you are everything you preach against. You're not helping. You're making things worse. You're causing more division. You're causing more fear. Statistically speaking, I am more likely to be shot and killed by my black elderly neighbor across the street than the cop who patrols my neighborhood. Statistically speaking, homicide by cop is very rare, but people like you find power in fear, so you keep it front page news. You don't have to be a white supremacist. You can be better. Wow. Some harsh words for Alyssa Milano from This Is Savvy. Now, Alyssa Milano is, is a very classic. I mean, it's she's Nancy Pelosi, uh, but 40 years younger. But she's a, a white liberal who imbibes all the BLM slogans, who who believes all the critical race theory nonsense. And gets called out by somebody here who is black, who's saying, think about the way the liberal mind is working with so many of these issues. There's a there's a real sense of of a constant lowering of expectations in the discourse that that liberals are engaged in. 
They're always suggesting that the African-American community, members of it, aren't going to be able to compete unless white liberals are able to help them out. And it's it's discouraging that we have a country where there's still so little ability to have honest conversations about race relations and that are first and foremost rooted in the fact that we do get along well as a country. There, there is not some place where there is greater diversity and greater uh, decency and, you know, fraternalism, so to speak, uh, just just friendliness between people from all over the world, all different kinds of backgrounds. I mean, America, instead of focusing on how amazing this place is in that regard, compared to so many countries all over the rest of the world, we're always told we're not. It's not that even that we're not good enough, that we're awful, that we're bad. And then there's also the way the narrative only speaks about certain aspects of race relations in this country and leaves others completely aside. I mean, there is this phenomenon that you keep seeing in New York City, uh, especially as we have a crime rate that is spiking substantially, where you'll see a report about a, you know, man in hoodie uh, punches elderly Asian lady in the face. And you say, okay, well, this is a public safety issue. Do we get a description of the man in the hoodie? Do we get a description of the person that, you know, sucker punched an old lady on the subway so that we can know and try to maybe find him? No, no, that's that's playing into a stereotype. They'll tell you, I I assure you, if it's a guy in a MAGA hat uh, who is a, a, a white guy, you're going to hear in detail everything he's ever posted on social media and make sure that this guy is found and they throw the book at him and you know he loses his job and is humiliated and his family disowns him and all that. But it's all about the narrative. On the other side of the equation, if it is a minority involved in an incident, the press bends over backwards to make sure that they're not playing into harmful stereotypes. Well, I'd, I'd be curious to know, what is the stereotype here? What, what are we seeing in the race relationship here where in Los Angeles County, a driver is pulled over for a very I've been pulled over for this, too. So before we go, oh, it's so racist that this a black woman is pulled over for driving and being on her cell phone. Now, I will admit I've been pulled over for this myself once. And I talked I I talked my way out of it, but because uh, I was very polite to the officer and I don't even know what I said, but I talked my way out of it. And uh, I will admit that I think it's a pretty annoying violation to get. I do know that distracted driving is very dangerous, but I also know that there's a lot of ways to be distracted in a car. So that, you know, whether it's your cell phone or a million other things. So I I think, you know, look, I I agree that it's a little bit of a of a marginal violation to pull somebody over for. But but it is the law and I've been pulled over for it. I'm a white guy. People get pulled over for this. And so this uh, this black female is pulled over by a Latino I know they like to say Latin X these days on the left, but no one uses that term. A Latino cop pulls her over and I want you to hear the exchange. I want you to hear. And this woman is very, you know, she's a she's a teacher, she says, and she is very smug and condescending and racist. If you listen to what she says. But it won't be described that way by the left because she's a black female. How could she be racist? Well, I think you'll get a sense of that. Play five. I am harassed today because I was going under the 
38. Yes, you are, ma'am. Good morning. Which is, and the speed limit is 40, and I was going 38, so why are you harassing me? You are me? correct. I pulled you over because... Because you're a murderer. Because uh, yes, I started to record because you can't you're a murderer. Be a, you can't be on your cell phone I, I while you're driving. I was on my phone. I was recording you because you scared you can't, me. You can't use your cell I phone while you're recording. I can record you. May I have your driver's license? I, it's, it's at my apartment. What's your apartment? It's at my home. I'm just taking my son to his. Do you therapy. have a, Do you have your driver's license? I, it, I mistakenly left it at home. Do you have a picture of your driver's license? Yes, I do. May I have it? And can you call your supervisor, please? Because I, I already did. He's on his way. Good, because you're a murderer. Okay. And so you're giving me a cell phone ticket. Is that why you're harassing me? Not harassment. Yeah. I, I am enforcing the law. I have a right to and record the police when they're harassing me. By all means, but you can't do it while you're driving. I was. I can. I wasn't. Doesn't texting or none of that. Do you have? And you have that you picture? scared me and made me think you were going to murder me. Okay. Well, I'm sorry you feel that way. Well, you're. That's not just a feeling. You're a murderer. Okay. Can you zoom in on that for me, sure. Jim? Thank you. And I'm perfectly legal, and I'm a teacher. So oh. there. Congratulations. Murderer. You're a murderer. I'm a teacher. You're a murderer, she says to the Los Angeles County police officer over and over again. Where would she get the idea? I wonder where would this this uh, black female teacher get the idea that a random law enforcement officer that pulls her over is a, quote, murderer? Oh, I don't know. From the slanders and the lies of the BLM movement that is rooted in the belief that cops are systematically murdering unarmed black men in this country, right? So really, she's just reacting to BLM rhetoric here, which is heinous and wrong. But you see it. For those who say, oh, Buck, it's not about... BLM is not about hating cops. Eh, wrong. It is about hating cops. We see it all the time. See it all the time. This woman, she knows she's being recorded. She's not hiding any of this. She thinks she's a hero. For calling this cop a murderer because he pulled her over for a cell phone violation. I mean, she's probably getting, what, a $50 ticket or something? I mean, it's, a, you know, I, I, come on. Un, unbelievable. Um, and, you know, I, I'm a teacher. You can just tell I me mean, this. I, I assure you this woman watches a lot of MSNBC. I assure you that she has completely taken in the lib narrative of victimization and cops are racist and teachers are all heroes. Look, there are good teachers and there are a lot of bad teachers. There are hardworking teachers that make a big difference in kids' lives. There are lazy, worthless teachers who rely on the unions to protect them from having to actually do their gosh darn jobs. But yeah, cops are murderers, she says. Play six. What's your last name? I can't see that there. Well, if here you, you stop, go, Stop murderer. shaking. Zoom in on that for no, me, No, because right? you're scaring me. Oh, you're threatening to kill me and my son. Can you give me okay. the, the well, iPad, you, you, I'll tell you what, you keep smiling. Yeah, you're on camera. You keep, you're, th you're trying to threaten to kill me. I'm I not didn't smiling. Say that. You're the one who's crazy. Hold that still. I can't see that. Uh, is this your car? Yes, it is. Um, you're trying to say I stole my own car because you're jealous? Yeah, is that what I don't that's think about? so. Be away from me right here, okay? You're jealous. All you need to do is get your signature. He's only citing you for using your cell phone while you're driving. That's it. Here you go, ma'am. Sign inside for the red box a, right there. For him being a Mexican racist. What is that name? Gas. It's on the citation, ma'am. Here you go, Mexican racist. 
You're always going to be a Mexican. You'll never be white. You know that, right? You'll never be white, which is what you really want to be. You there you go, dear. White. Have you, a good day. You want to be white so bad. You'll always be Mexican, she says. You'll never be white, which is what you really want to be. Because he's a cop? This woman's a racist. She's a black female. and She's a racist. That's what you're hearing. She is sneering and snide and vicious to a cop on racial issues and demeaning him for being I mean, Mexican or, you know, Latino. Demeaning him on video. And she knows she won't get fired from her job. She won't. There will be no consequences. She can say whatever she wants. Oh, but it's so hard. She's she's such a victim, I'm sure. Right. But I think she's driving in like a luxury German I, I can't can't remember if it was a BMW or a, or a Mercedes. It's good to be a teacher these days. Oh, it was a Mercedes. Yeah, she's driving around in a Mercedes. She's a teacher in a Mercedes. Okay, teachers don't make enough money. They work so hard. Okay, sure. Um, but so you have a teacher, a black female teacher in a Mercedes, demeaning a Latino cop as being jealous of her car, being a murderer. And never being able to be white, which she says is his real aspiration. Disgusting. Disgusting. Do you think that she will actually be held to account for this? Who's the one who really has privilege in this situation? Look at, look at the way this lines up. Who has privilege? Who's in a position of power and, and social authority? This woman feels... No compunction whatsoever about acting like a, a heinous, evil, awful person. Because she's a black female in a Mercedes who's been pulled over by a cop, and therefore she can call him a murderer and say that he doesn't that that he demeans his own race by being a law enforcement officer. Do you think she'll suffer any consequences whatsoever? No, she thinks she's a hero. So do the libs, so do the leftists. This is a real window into uh, what race relations are actually like sometimes in this country. There's a lot of racism that has nothing to do with white people. Yeah, that's the truth. Just ask any of the people who have been attacked who are Asian these days. And who are they generally being attacked by? It's not guys in MAGA hats who are Trump supporters. But the media doesn't want you to ever think about that. There's a lot of racism and, and racial animosity that exists that has nothing to do with white supremacy. But you've got to find the truth yourself. Can't count on the media to tell you. They're pushing a narrative, you see. And the woman in that car, in that Mercedes, is basically spitting on that officer and his heritage and calling him a murderer. She knows what the narrative is, and she's protected by it. This country is in a crisis that is all about identity. And there is a wager being made on the right that they can get enough white people to believe that they are targeted, that there has been a perverse culture shift, and that they are being replaced. True? No. But it's not about facts. It's about fear. I think people already know that. I think people know that. If that were true, then that party wouldn't be as formidable and the Democrats wouldn't be as vulnerable as they are in the upcoming midterms. No. It's people already know that. And the people in the Republican Party know that. That's why percent of them. That's why you have an insurrection. Biden didn't win. You have an insurrection because people believe that America was founded in the image of white people. 
and that the country was built in their image, and therefore the election should go their way. It's the same thing that Rick Santorum is saying about Native Americans and the lack of the contribution, what have you. It's the same thing. Here you have two multimillionaire morons uh, who are, are trying to push forward this narrative that the Republican Party is a white nationalist party and pushed for the insurrection. And as we've discussed many times here, the so-called insurrection was a riot involving a few thousand people. There were 74, 75 million people that voted for Donald Trump. The insurrection didn't actually kill any law enforcement officers. The people doing it were not armed, but the media has a story that they tell themselves that justifies their just despising, despising those who disagree with them politically, which is what this is really all about. They absolutely hate the people who won't go along with the left. And so they have to come up with some moral formulation of this to justify that disdain, and that's what they do. Don Lemon owns multiple houses, is a multimillionaire, He shows up, he reads off a prompter, he is an ignoramus, he's a moron, and not a particularly nice guy, by the way, not someone you, and I know know Don Lemon a bit, I've worked with him in the past, not someone you could trust, not somebody who's honest, and all he does is complain about how racist and awful America is, and you see this, you say, wow, America is so racist and awful that here you have somebody who who is an out member of the LGBT community who is black who is elevated beyond 99.99% of Americans in socioeconomic status and power. And, and all he does is complain about how hard it is. All he does is talk about the victimization and the white nationalists and everything else. It's, it's a mental illness, folks. I mean, liberalism engenders these kinds of mental illnesses in its adherents. I can still taste it. The moink chicken breast that I made last night. I cooked for my girlfriend. I sliced it up, and the first bite, it was so juicy and flavorful. And I didn't have to go to the store. I had my moink on hand because I got a moink box with bacon, pork, chicken, steak. I've had the ribeye. I've had the, the bacon. This is top quality. I mean, it's the best protein I've had ever made in my own home. I'm telling you that right now. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door. All their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and Moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormone, sugar, and all the other junk you find in prepackaged meat aisle stuff. Join up right now. Go to moinkbox.com slash buck and have a box of the most delicious meats ever delivered right to your door. You put them in the freezer and they're ready. Whenever you need them, you thaw them out and you're going to have the best steaks, the most succulent lamb chops. Oh, I've got the lamb chops right now in my freezer. I can't wait to make them. You got to join the Moink movement today. Help this independent farm. Stay away from Big Agra too. These are great people with top quality meat. And right now, right now, listeners to this show will get free ground beef for a year. That's right. Free ground beef for a year. All you have to do is go to moinkbox.com. Go to this website right now. Moink box.com slash buck again that's moinkbox.com slash buck and have the best meat chicken pork ever delivered right to your home right to your door
Coke went woke, and now people want it to go broke. Probably not going to happen. It's Coca-Cola basically selling a legalized drug. Sugar, addictive. Caffeine, addictive. Mix them together, you've got a product. One of the most important, I'm going to tell you this, a few things, you know, I don't get into a lot of you know, life guidance and advice on this show, so occasionally I'll just share things with you, and it's just from my own experience. Um, and, you know, the people who know me personally sometimes refer to me as the wise old owl because I think a lot about my own mistakes and I try to be introspective, try to learn from them. Um, things to cut out of your life. Soda. Top of the list. Just not worth it. Don't drink it. It's not good for you, right? Pornography. For the gentlemen out there, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Don't look at it. Don't, you know, I'm not saying you got to be a Puritan, right? You don't have to cover your eyes if you're uh, walking around the, the Renaissance wing of a museum and there's some boobies hanging out or something, right? But porn, get rid of it. You'll be happier. You'll be better off. You'll appreciate your, you'll, you'll appreciate your own uh, libido more. You'll appreciate female beauty more. I'm telling you, it's true. Gave, gave up even, even looking at porn a long time ago and... Never looked at it, never thought twice about it. I mean, when I say thought twice about it, never thought that it wasn't the right decision afterwards, right? Um, things to cut out. Oh, negative people. Very important one. Cut negative people out of your life. Uh, but if you can cut out soda, pornography, and uh, there are a few other things I'd put on that list, but you're, you're just making things better for yourself. I don't, I don't want to get into a, a moralizing lecture here because I have my own deficiencies and my own weaknesses. And you're probably thinking, Buck, you like caffeine a lot. You drink a lot of coffee. True, true. If I could get rid of it and be as productive as I am, I would, but I can't. So I understand I have my I have my own vices, but I just Buck's wisdom for the day. Soda and porn out. Get rid of it. Get it. Get get it gone. You don't need it. Um, I just Coca-Cola got me thinking about that now. Right, you sit there, you're drinking your Coke, you're watching, uh, you know, whatever you're watching on the computer screen. And this is all this is all bad stuff for you. Um, Coca-Cola had an initiative to get 30 percent of all the legal work done by Coca-Cola. 30 percent of it was supposed to be done by minorities and 15 percent. I'm sorry, half of it. So then 15 percent would have to be billed by attorneys who were black. This was a diversity plan put in place by the former general counsel of Coca-Cola, recently left, Bradley Gayton. And he resigned to become a consultant to CEO James Quincy. Quincy's a British guy. I think a lot of people are surprised to know that the CEO of Coca-Cola is a Brit. But anyway, and... As the Daily Mail writes it here, Coca-Cola appears to be putting a pause on its plan to transition to woke-a-cola. It is suspending its diversity initiative after the firm replaced its top lawyer after just eight months on the job. Uh, diversity guidelines. Think about this now. This is a private company that is setting up pure, numerically-based racial quotas. Now, this as a matter of equal protection under the law, is in fact illegal. But what we've had in this country for years now is because people benefit from this and the Democrats and a lot of minorities benefit from this, 
the pretense that what goes on with holistic college admissions or diversity and inclusion initiatives at corporations is that there's not as a as a matter of what's actually going on racial advantage given to some over others in either admissions in schools or in hiring for jobs. That's just not true. We're living with a lie. This is a lie. And this brings me to some of the Supreme Court cases, whether it's Grutter v. Bollinger or others that look at affirmative action programs and the decisions. The liberals always have this. Well, you know, we sure that we're discriminating by race, but it's a it's good discrimination. And we need to balance things. And there's a holistic. It's not just this. It's all these other things. They just create these gaps and gray areas to exploit for what is just discrimination by race. And Coca-Cola was certainly interested in doing that as well. And now they're backing off of it a little bit, right? Because it's too explicit. You know, 15% of all the legal work has to be billed out by black attorneys. Okay. Now you're establishing that you can set up a quota. That's what a quota is. So what about a company that says, we're only going to do business with black owned businesses. We're only going to have suppliers that are black owned or it doesn't black, Asian, Latino, whatever. It doesn't matter. Any racial or ethnic group, you say we're only going to do business with people that are in that category. I think everybody would say, well, that's not OK. That's contra the American ethic. And it's it's against equal protection under the law, which is something we're all supposed to believe in. And it's a constitutional duty. Um, but the left likes racial politics. The left benefits from it. The left continues to use it to its advantage. And uh, they keep pretending that what they're doing isn't really what they're doing. I mean, the admissions committees are perhaps the best example of this. Uh, you know, Har Harvard has been sued by some Asian Americans who have gotten the data, and it shows that if you are black, your chance of getting into Harvard with much lower grades and much lower SATs than any other ethnic group is really, really high, comparatively speaking. It's worth something like 150 or 250 or no, 150 to 250 points on the SAT, which is a lot. Now, Harvard says, oh, no, we're just trying to create a diverse and they, they use all this this language that's amorphous. That's oh, it's a it's a tapestry. It's a holistic approach and all this stuff. No, they decide, you know, we need at least, you know, eight percent of our freshman class or 10 percent of our freshman class to be black. And so however we have to play with the numbers to get there, that's what we're going to do. Well, that's a quota. Quotas are not allowed, though, because quotas are explicit violations of equal protection under the law. And when you start to see, well, then what quotas are OK and what quotas aren't. So the affirmative action regime, which and, and wokeness comes, what we see as wokeness today is just the weaponization of the regime of political correctness that was used to justify affirmative action in the 80s and 90s. And now at the heights of corporate America and at the top of the Democrat Party, you have people who have benefited from this substantially. I mean, you have individuals who are big proponents of affirmative action, who they themselves received affirmative action to get to where they are. But if you bring that up, you're a bad person. You're not even allowed to discuss the fact that this was a part of their process. And you sit there and you say, OK, so we can't talk about this, but it affects our laws it affects people's lives and we're just told to shut up and obey that 
that should send up all the warning flags you need. Coca-Cola, among other corporations, is just trying to ride the political waves now for its own benefit. But they went a little too far here with the explicit use of quotas for legal work to be done by Coca-Cola, specifically that it has to be a certain percentage of black lawyers that are doing their legal work. Now, you're probably like me, cynical enough to realize James Quincy is a white British CEO. Why doesn't he insist that he step down and have a black person take his job? Well, he's not a lawyer, you see, or at least he's not working in corporate law. So it's easy for him to come up with some program or to utilize, implement some program that's not going to affect him, but makes him look like a virtuous fellow. Wokeness in corporations is damaging, and it's time we fight back against it with everything we've got because they are ruining. This guy didn't found Coca-Cola. He didn't build this company. The left takes things over and destroys them. And then when they're running them, they say, see, we're in charge. Yeah, like a bunch of terrorists seizing an airplane. They didn't build the airplane. The fact that they're at the controls isn't because of their great virtue or genius. It's because they get on it. They use force to take control of it. And then they drive the thing into the side of a mountain. That's what they're doing to corporate America. That's what they're doing to great American companies that have been around for generations now. That's what they're doing to Coca-Cola. But like I said, stop drinking soda. It's terrible for you. Last week, I was on the Fox News show Outnumbered. And one of the last stories, I think it might have been, oh, it was the second to last story before we talked about Netflix suggestions, was about this company called Basecamp. And Basecamp is a software company. I don't even really know what kind of software, what they do. It's based in Chicago. And it's a software company that, had the CEO decide that they weren't going to do politics in the office anymore. No more politics in the office. That means you can't be writing about social issues and political issues on the Slack channel, the uh, instant messenger communication channels that they use. You couldn't bring it up in meetings. Essentially, they were a software company that was going to focus on software and not about social justice issues and wokeness and all the rest of it. That that was the basics of this, right? That's the baseline understanding what it, what was going on. And my then uh, colleagues uh, sitting on the couch at Fox were all very pleased with this. I believe uh, my friend Tommy Lahren said this is how you cancel cancel culture. And there was a sense of, ah, yes, if you go back and watch that episode, I say, well, I'd be willing to bet that the woke are going to come for this company in a major way and they're going to either walk this back or have pretty suffer some severe consequences. As much as I love the idea, I know that the left will not allow this to go, will not allow this transgression to go unpunished. And guess what? Here we are now just a few days later and they've had almost a third of base camps employees resign in disgust over the no politics policy a third of the company it has a almost 60 employees and has about 20 people who have just quit and which you can imagine is going to put the company in a pretty rough spot when you lose a third of your personnel overnight you know you're going to assume that they weren't all worthless and drawn a paycheck for no reason so that's going to make things more difficult 
So here's there's a piece on The Verge, which I think is uh, I've actually never really heard of before. But there's a piece on The Verge inside the all hands meeting that led to a third of base camp employees quitting. The company's senior leadership wanted to quell employees concerns that only made things much, much worse by Casey Newton. And it is fascinating. Let me read you a little bit from this piece. Because you want to sense when I talk to you about how wokeness has infiltrated corporate America in the boardroom, this is exactly what I'm talking about. So now I'm, I'm giving you a clear, a clear instance of the phenomenon that I've said is so, so concerning. All right. At 8 a.m. Pacific time on Friday, a bleary eyed base camp CEO, Jason Freed, gathered his remote workforce on Zoom to apologize Four days earlier, he had thrown the company into turmoil by announcing that societal and political discussions would no longer be allowed on the company's internal chat forums. In his blog post, Freed said the decision stemmed from the fact that today's social and political waters are especially choppy and that internal discussions of those issues was not healthy and hasn't served us well. The public reaction had been furious and Freed said he was sorry for the way the new policies had been rolled out but not for the policies themselves. Behind the scenes, Freed had been dealing with an employee reckoning over a longstanding company practice of maintaining a list of funny customer names, some of which were of Asian and African origin. The internal discussion over that list had been oriented primarily around making Basecamp feel more inclusive to its employees and customers. But Freed and his co-founder, David Hansen, were taken aback by an employee post which argued that mocking customer names laid the foundation for racially motivated violence and closed the thread. They also disbanded an internal committee of employees who had volunteered to work on issues related to diversity, equity and inclusion. Ah, yes, the woke insurgency. So that's the end of the quote there. The woke insurgency from within. Notice that they just like when they didn't like Senator Cotton's op ed, the New York Times, it's creating violence against communities of color. That's what they said. That's what the left said. That's the go to now elevated into the realm of hysteria. It's not that I don't like your ideas. Your ideas are actually causing violence against my people or other people who are of a non white ethnic origin. That is the game. That's what they do. On Friday, it goes on. This piece is amazing. Employees had their chance to address these issues directly with Freed and his co-founder. What followed was a wrenching discussion that left several employees I spoke with in tears. 30 minutes after the meeting ended, Freed announced that Basecamp's longtime head of strategy, Ryan Singer, had been suspended and placed under investigation after he questioned the existence of white supremacy at the company. Over the weekend, Singer, who worked for the company for nearly 18 years, resigned. Within a few hours of that meeting, at least 20 people, one third of Basecamp's 57 employees, announced their intention to accept buyouts. And while many of them have been leading toward resigning in the aftermath of Freed's original post, the meeting itself pushed several to accelerate their decisions. The response overwhelmed the founders who extended the deadline to accept buyouts indefinitely amid an unexpected surge of interest. I mean, this is unbelievable. People 
who are into this wokeness and dealing with the white supremacy in our company. They're just a bunch of power mad babies. And they're destroying this company right now. They're absolutely destroying this company. I told you this would happen. People are like, oh, Buck, you know, the, the initial story when I was in the outnumbered couch was look at how great this is. And I said, this company's basically going to get ripped apart. And it is. The Buckster always knows. Quote, roughly 90 minutes into the meeting, Singer raised his hand and spoke. One of Basecamp's most senior executives, he had joined the company in 2003. He was essentially Basecamp's chief product, chief product officer. Along the way, he had also alienated some of his co-workers by promoting conservative views. In 2016, three employees said he praised right-wing website Breitbart's coverage of the presidential election in an internal forum. Oh, my gosh. Dun, dun, dun. You know, this is where we get to the real crime. No, there's a senior person who works at base camp who, who believes, who believes in, in... Breitbart's coverage on a website? No, how could he? Notice who the babies are. Notice who the people are who can't handle alternative opinions. Leftists, once again. In an April discussion about the list of the funny customer names, Singer said that attempting to link the list to genocide was absurd. Yeah. Because it is, folks. Let's get into some more of this here in, in just a moment. What does the explosion, the woke explosion of Basecamp, how did it happen? We'll get into it in a moment. Okay, so we're talking about this piece on The Verge about Basecamp, a Chicago-based software company that is in total freefall uh, because in the midst of an avalanche, you could say, because they had a policy of no politics and then a whole bunch of lib crybabies completely freaked out. One of them actually even suggested that having a list of funny names that they had internally from customers, funny names was akin to genocide. No reasonable, rational person would ever think that that is something that should be thought or said out loud. Uh, but that is what happened. And then a guy who once said he liked Breitbart's coverage of the election in 2016 said the following. And this Oh, this created the total revolt. Quote, I strongly disagree. We live in a white supremacist culture, Singer said. I don't believe in a lot of the framing around implicit bias. I think a lot of this is actually racist. He continued, very often, if you express a dissenting view, you get called a Nazi. I have not felt this is open territory for discussion. If we were to try to get into it as a group discussion, it would be very painful and divisive. A handful of other speakers followed. Then a black employee asked if the company could revisit Singer's remarks. Quote, the fact that you can be a white male and come to this meeting and call people racist and say white supremacy doesn't exist when it's blatant at this company is white privilege, the employee said. The fact that he wasn't corrected and was in fact thanked, it makes me sick. Freed went to move on, but other employees pressed him for more of a response. At that point, employees said Singer spoke up again. I can gladly respond, Singer said. I stand by what I said. Saying white people have something in common is racist. I stand by it. I'm very sure I don't treat people in a racist way. The black employee said they will not name the black employee in this article for fear of retaliation against the black employee, by the way. This is on TheVerge.com. 
They did not want to hear from Singer, but after some crosstalk, he finished his statement. Uh, The black employee responded, you said white supremacy doesn't exist. That's a factual lie. It's not true. To which Singer responded, I said we have different ways of framing. If you want to debate whether it exists anywhere, then yeah, but not here at this company, not with the people I associate with. It exists right now, another employee said. This is blanking BS. They said the real words, of course. You are being ridiculous. I don't accept this framing, Singer responded. It's not productive to argue further. I don't want to argue. Yeah. End quote. Uh, Friends, here you have employees led by one black employee in this instance, insisting that the company they work at is white supremacist and that there must be apologies and concessions and knee bending of all kinds. And a couple of senior officials at this company said, no, they would not do that. And so now the company's imploding with 20 people leaving 30 percent of the company fleeing because they all want to cry about social justice at the office all day and how racist the company they work at is without any examples of actual racism other than a list of funny names. Let's dive into the latest on the border crisis. And for that, we're joined by the attorney general of the state of Arizona, A.G. Bronovich. Mr. Attorney General, good to have you back. Thank you so much, Buck. Thanks, uh, everyone, for listening today. So I was just down in McAllen looking at what's going on in the Rio Grande sector of the border. And the short version is it's a mess. It's pretty close to wide open. They're getting hundreds and hundreds of people surrendering a day, hundreds and hundreds of people escaping. What are you just give us the overview? I mean, Arizona is a major border state. What are you seeing? Well, the border is overwhelmed, and it's not only what we're seeing, but it's what we're hearing. And so if you talk to law enforcement, if you talk to the mayors, if you talk to the sheriffs, they will tell you that they've never seen anything like this and as long as their memory is. So for at least the last 20, 30 years, no one has ever seen it this bad. And we know even from the numbers, Buck, that it's a record amount of people coming across the border. It's expected that 2 million, 2 million people will illegally cross our southern border this year. That is like the entire state of Nebraska coming into the United States in one year for folks that, you know, we know that, um, you know, now that a lot of these folks are dependent on government benefits. We know that the Biden administration got rid of the public charge rule, which means that folks are getting housing and health care and child care. And that's encouraging even more people to come over. We know that, as you alluded to, there are groups of people coming over 80, 100 at a time literally surrendering because they know that they're not going to be turned away and they know they're going to get these benefits. They know they're going to get housing. And as a result of that, the cartels are taking advantage of it. So literally, if you talk to the Border Patrol agents, they will tell you quietly that, you know, as they go process people and people are being processed um, by Border Patrol, literally the cartels are driving trucks and smuggling huge loads of drugs across the border. We know that in last month there was a 233% increase in fentanyl seizures at the border. We know that recently that, you know, more than 100 pounds of meth was seized. So it's this is a... Not an Arizona problem. It's not a Texas problem. This is an American problem, and it's going to have devastating consequences on our country as we move forward. Now, I know that you've spoken, or rather, sorry, you led a brief to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, recently asking them to intervene in the public charge rule. Before you get into the specifics of that Supreme Court back and forth, I I just want to know, because you mentioned this, the one of the central points of debate here about the illegal immigration crisis is where we always hear from the more open borders advocates side of this, whatever you want to call them. 
oh, but people who come to this country illegally do not get public benefits. Effectively, the welfare state of America is closed to illegal aliens. That is a claim that is constantly made by Democrats and by leftists. Can you tell us exactly what is true and not true about that? Well, the short answer, I can't give short answers, Buck, but look, for nearly 100 years, the United States Code has provided what they call the public charge rule. And it basically means that if you're going to come to the United States and you want to immigrate here, you want a green card, you want citizenship, you have to be able to support yourself. So during the Trump administration, the Trump administration interpreted that and they promulgated a rule that basically said that you can't be on public benefits, health care, welfare, um, uh, you know, other public assistance for more than 12 months out of the first 30, 36 months you're here. There was litigation. The leftist groups attacked that. They said that it was, you know, whatever, a bad policy and that it treated immigrants unfairly. And so it was challenged. And there literally was a case literally pending at the U.S. Supreme Court set for oral argument. And what the Biden administration did is they rescinded the Trump rule and then they literally dropped the case, which is something very unusual. Even when you have transitions in administrations, like dropping a case pending for oral argument, something unusual. So we, along with my colleagues, some of my colleagues, we filed a motion first in the Ninth Circuit asking to intervene, basically saying we want to defend the rule. We want to defend the law and we want to basically make the arguments the Biden administration won't. Ninth Circuit said no. There was a great dissent, um, and we appeal, and that's what we've asked. Just on Friday, we filed a petition at the U.S. Supreme Court asking them to let us come in and defend that rule and to argue the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Because the bottom line is this, and this is really important. Look, I'm a first-generation American, and I understand what the American dream is about. I mean, I'm living it. Um, But I also understand that, you know, people came here, they did it the right way, they worked hard, and you got success by, you know, working hard and having to be, you know, quite frankly, better than people at some times. And, you know, that's part of the American dream. And what the Biden administration is doing is not only have they decriminalized the border by, you know, not processing people for deportation and letting people out that have felony convictions, what they've done furthermore now is they literally are providing health care child care. As you know, they're providing housing. They, ICE, DHS signed an $86, $87 million contract to provide housing for people that illegally cross the border. So literally, if you are an American taxpayer, regardless of what you think about the situation on the border immigration, you are literally subsidizing people, providing them health care, um, child care, housing, um, while we have homeless vets and people that, you know, can't find jobs because of the pandemic. It's, to me, it's, it's quite frankly, that's immoral. I mean, regardless of what you think about immigration, I think it's immoral. It's unfair to American taxpayers. Buck. We're speaking to Attorney General for the state of Arizona, Mark Bronovich. And, uh, you know, Mr. Attorney General, I, I just want to know, on the one hand, I mean, and this comes up in the public charge issue, on the one hand, the left is outraged at the notion that this law, which, as you point out, is on the books, would really be enforced. But on the other, I mean, you will hear people. Look, the left has a lot of things they say that don't stand up to scrutiny, but they keep saying it because there's some that they get some benefit out of using it as either a smokescreen or silencing people. Uh, So they'll say, for example, there's no such thing as voter fraud. Voter fraud never happens. They say that. Well, clearly that's not true. You do a Google search. People go to prison for voter fraud. So that's not true. But it's a talking point. They say on the left that because what you're bringing up is a temporary housing situation or bringing people in. But the claim is always illegal immigrants do not get access 
to welfare benefits. Well, if that's true, then why are they upset about the enforcement of the public charge law, right? Tell us, how is it that illegals in the country in general avail themselves of welfare? How does it happen? Well, the problem with the left's logic is they are not intellectually consistent, and they will never, you know, one of the things we talk about is that Everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. And the reality is, is that, you know, even we point out in the brief that um, that the public charge rule, it was estimated just in Medicaid benefits would save states about a billion dollars a year. So I know in D.C. they don't think this is real money, but it's real money for the state. So, for example, in 2019, Arizona spent three billion dollars on Medicaid benefits. And so if you increase the amount of people that are eligible for Medicaid, it obviously increases costs to every state. Right. But, but, but I, I, so I have to jump. Yeah. Do, do illegal immigrants get Medicaid in Arizona? This is the fundamental point. Well, this is according to the Biden administration. Yes. So they, they, they by by rescinding that rule and because the federal government provides about 80 percent of the state's Medicaid funding, you know, there's the old saying, he who, what pays the piper calls the tune. So states and I don't know if it's every state, but I think almost every state if not every state, including Arizona, where like 80 percent of our uh, Medicaid funding, uh, healthcare funding comes from the federal government. So if the federal government says this is who you have to provide benefits to, if you don't, we're going to take away your funding, then states are left with the choice of, well, I can't provide any benefits or I've got to include benefits to people that don't have legal status. So what the Biden administration has literally done, and, you know, we talked about the temporary housing, the housing programs, you know, the child care stuff. But yeah, when it comes to healthcare, what they have essentially done, and I think that they may have said this on the campaign trails, they said they were going to give healthcare to people whether they have legal status or not, and that's literally what they're doing now by rescinding these rules and not defending the existing laws. So, so again, just because I, I really want to understand this process because there's a lot of misinformation, intentional misinformation put out there about this. If somebody crosses over right now from you know from uh, from Honduras they go through Mexico they come into Arizona they come into your forget about I don't, I don't you know you're the attorney general for Arizona so let's just focus on your state for a moment they come into Arizona and they they want health care they want Medicaid it's not even that they have to use a fake social security number or go through any of that they can actually under Biden rules get Medicaid access is that where it is yes okay so that they are access. I mean, Medicaid is as healthcare welfare. So that's yeah, look, look. When I talk to people, like even when we talk to folks in Southern Arizona, some of the hospitals, regional centers, you know, they've told me that you know they they can't ask people's you know citizenship st- status, and this is part of the problem. And Buck, this is probably a conversation even for another podcast. But as Washington D.C. gets bigger and it provides more funding and with more strings to the state, what uh, uh, basically happens? is you get um, the Washington controlling, as I said earlier, they're calling the tunes so people are, or the hospitals are forced to provide this care. Literally, like I said, if you talk to a hospital administrator anywhere in this country, at least in Arizona, they'll tell you they can't ask citizenship. They have to they have to treat those people, and then because of the Biden rules, they will now be eligible for enrollment, or the hospitals or themselves will be able to uh, get that reimbursement uh, based on the new Biden rules. We're speaking to the Trump rules. We're speaking to the attorney general of Arizona, Mark Bronovich. And and Mark, the are, are there other programs? I mean, do, in Arizona, do they get in-state tuition for college? Uh, do they are they able to enroll Are legal aliens able to enroll in local public schools? I mean, where else 
And we're talking about the finances of this. I mean, I really want to understand where, where else uh, are taxpayer dollars going toward supporting those who enter the country illegally? Well, it's interesting that you bring up the public universities because don't know if your podcast listeners, they probably wouldn't know this, but I actually have multiple lawsuits or I had multiple. I still have multiple lawsuits against a higher education establishment. And, you know, I think that part of the war on the left is to undermine institutions. And it started with, you know, not only, you know, our religious institutions, but, you know, then it was our education institutions. And so our universities, our community colleges here tried to give in-state tuition for people that have legal status. But there was a law, there was there was initiative passed by Arizona voters in 2008 that said you cannot provide any government benefits, including um higher education or, or college tuition to people that don't have legal status. So the universities, community colleges did it. I followed, we followed, we were involved in litigation. We won three, nothing at the court of appeals. And then literally the next week, the, the Arizona board of regents, the universities here voted to continue to provide in-state tuition for people that don't have legal status. And even though it's contrary to the law, we went up to state Supreme court, we won seven to nothing. And the justices said, clearly that's, that's illegal under existing Arizona law. So there are issues like that that we've had to fight. And, you know, we've had a lot against the university on different issues. But the universities tried that, but I was able to effectively stop them. Now, before we let you go, what can be done by what is going to be done by your state to try to force the federal government's hand to do more to at least stop the flow of illegal migrants into Arizona? Well, I... I am doing everything I can, Buck. And, you know, part of the problem, and I think the reason why so many get people get frustrated is because a lot of elected officials say one thing and do something else. And so I've tried to use every tool in my toolbox. We have three litigation tracks right now against the Biden administration. The first one involves his deportation pause and then his interim guidance. Those are interrelated. Basically, there's about 1.2 million people in this country right now with deportation orders. Biden administration is not deporting them. As a result of discovery documents, just this past week, we found out that ICE itself knew that this was going to lead to a 50% reduction and, you know, people being arrested and apprehended. We know that ICE now, because of the Biden administration policies, a lot of folks are frustrated because they're not essentially doing internal enforcement. We know from some of those internal documents that it's not a budget or a resources issue, that it's a clear, raw political decision. And so we're asking the courts to enforce you know, title eight of the U.S. code and to make sure people are getting uh, deported that have deportation orders. Two, as you, we talked about earlier, we have the ongoing litigation about the public charge rule, trying to defend that and trying to uh, minimize the fiscal impact of in what I call the incentivizing of illegal immigration by the Biden administration. And then, you know, we have a third track uh, of uh, dealing with a lawsuit we filed that alleges that when the Biden administration stopped building the wall and they rescinded the Remain in Mexico policy, that that created an environmental problem. And so, you know, you get all these folks on the left that talk about the environment and how much they love trees and cactuses. And look, I want clean air and clean water. But the reality is, is that when you have hundreds of thousands, millions of people cross, coming across your border in one year, the average person is leaving about six to eight pounds of trash. That is having a detrimental impact on our environment. Not only habitat trails, uh, you know, animals, um, places where the animals live. And so, you know, the way to solve that is by building the wall and by reinstating the remaining Mexico policy, because that then will lead to less people coming across the border and devastating our environment. And so, you know, we're still waiting on that case. We filed it. And so there are several tracks of litigation we have 
So I'm using all, all right. Tools. Well, A.G. Bronovich, we'll have to have you come back and tell us as you uh, get further down the line there on those. We appreciate you holding the line, though, and trying to uphold the rule of law, at least in your own state in Arizona. Attorney General Mark Bronovich, great to have you, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Buck. It's one of the more interesting thinkers you'll come across these days, my friends. Our buddy Michael Malice joining us now to weigh in on all things happening in America and around the world. He is the host of You're Welcome with Michael Malice, which you can subscribe to. And also got a book coming out, The Anarchist Handbook, which will be available for all of you folks out there. Mike, great to have you. Uh, interesting is always a euphemism for freak show. <laughs> in your case, buddy, it's actually just interesting. But let me let me ask you what what it is before we get into your, your uh, what, what the book is going to be a little bit about. Yeah. Um, I, I think that on, on the right, we've talked a lot about freedom for a long time. There's been a lot of discussion about how we, we all love freedom. And I've been appalled at how many people and for how long have gone along with being told they can't leave their house. They can't hug their relatives. They can't uh, they can't go to church. They can't do all these things. And now what we see are there are even libs. There are leftists out there who are making a kind of fetish of lockdown. Even when the CDC says it's safe to go outside, they're saying, no, no, it's not. What the heck has happened? H.L. Mencken, who was a great contrarian curmudgeon of the um, early 20th century newspaper man, he had this great quote, which just rings true every day, where he said, the average man does not want to be free. He merely wants to be safe. Uh, I think there are a lot of people, right and left, who are perfectly happy and who are, in fact, desperate to be told how to live their lives in certain capacities so that they don't have to deal with the responsibility of having these choices, which they don't feel uh, that they have the emotion or the intellectual capacity to deal with. Uh, It's disappointing that people in other countries are outpacing America when it comes to combating this crap. Um, It is disturbing to see how many Americans are perfectly happy to be basically private enforcers of you know what the corporate media would like us all to do but thankfully i think um uh conservatives are to some extent recently going on offense uh ronda santis in florida being a good example of making it illegal to have vaccine passports so uh i'm cautiously optimistic about the future of this country but i have very little hope broadly speaking, in conservatism as a mechanism of fighting the left because we have decades of data to show that they've done a poor job of it. Well, I, I, I wanted to talk to you about this because I am I am hopeful that there is as a moment now and it's it's in part because of lockdowns, but also because of of woke corporatism that that the old model and, and you know, the, the weekly standard national review conservatism, if you will, was. We're just trying to create a neutral space where everyone's nice to each other in public life and we'll, we'll, we'll leave each other alone and there'll be this small government and, and that this is effectively a fantasy and that what's actually happened. And just to take the last you could, I'm sure, expand it the last you know 50 years, 100 years, but certainly in the last 20 years, what we've seen are conservatisms, not conservatives, not actually conserving very much at all. And that what happens is we just. It, we, we fall victim to a modern Bailey argument of the other side where they say, well, you know, we're, we're going to let's say we're, we're going to ban. We're going to do an Australian buyback of all firearms. No. OK, well, maybe we'll just do uh, the bump stocks on AR-15s. We go, oh, OK, well, that's reasonable. But their incrementalism keeps winning and we keep seeding ground. That's what it feels like. And I'm hoping that that's changed. But maybe I'm optim- overly optimistic. 
No, I, I think you're you're possibly right that that has changed. I'm sure you would agree if this was the 80s, the Republican response to vaccine passports would be to have them issued by private industry instead of the government. Yep. Um, that would be the mindset. I think the video, uh, and I think videos of 2020, and I think the oscillation between you have to stay in your home and now you have to take to the streets to protest racist police brutality and you have to be happy that your businesses are being burnt down and you're being told, well, it's just mostly peaceful. This doesn't matter. And now you have to return to your home and you have to be driven out of business for the sake of Amazon, Apple and Target. I think the, this kind of dominoes for very many people on the conservative right has led them to an epiphany that corporate America despises you and your values, and they will have no problem doing whatever it takes to crush you, including using the power of the state. And I think that is a very big difference from the conservatism of yesteryear, the kind of country club, chamber of commerce conservatism. We're speaking to Michael Malice. His show is You're Welcome, which you can all uh, subscribe to online. Check it out for sure. And he's got a book, which he's just telling me is going to be on Amazon here soon, uh, The Anarchist Handbook, not to be confused with cookbook, The Anarchist Handbook, which we'll talk to Michael about in a second. But, you know, on that point, I, I to try to illustrate that change in mentality on the right, broadly speaking, uh, Michael, I, I've been telling everybody because I remember I remember doing segments at Fox News maybe three, four years ago where we'd say, you know, they canceled another or not canceled, but they suspended another conservative off of social media. And it used to be that Facebook or Twitter, it was always the same dance. Oh, yeah, you know, it was a you know, terms of service, but we, you know, we didn't mean to or it wasn't. And, and, and what we've seen the last, you know, 12 to 18 months, it actually started with the lockdowns. People think it's Trump. It's actually around lockdowns first was shut up. You're suspended. What are you going to do about it? I mean, there's been a real, you know, they, they've gone from, oh, it's a coincidence to now we've got teeth and we're using them. And I think that has finally set the lights off in the minds of a lot of people on the right, broadly speaking. And I think a lot of people on the right are realizing, OK, this is not something that's going to be changing in terms of Facebook and Twitter. So instead of and I know there's some people on the right who are like, OK, let's force Twitter and Facebook to behave in ways that we regard as fair. But I think the people who are thinking more long term, and these are the people that I would agree with, uh, I think they are the ones who are more thinking, OK, what um, uh, what can we do to make sure that long term these agencies do not have the power to enforce their will and we create alternative cultures? For example, Dave Rubin, who I'm sure you're friends with, uh, he created Locals, which I'm on malice.locals.com. And it's basically a Facebook for people that is creator-oriented. So you're not cancelable when you go to that space. This is compared to, let's say, Patreon, which some people are familiar with, which was a few years ago, which you know, you're a member of someone's Patreon, you give them five bucks a month, you support creators. But what Patreon started doing is just banning people overnight without warning and entire livelihoods were being ruined. So I think this understanding that the enemy class isn't going anywhere and you need to create workarounds is a much healthier approach than this fetishization of Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill sitting down together. What do we do about what's happening in the country where you have effectively two sides, uh, two warring political tribes that now feel increasingly like they they can't actually be in the same room. But in this case, it's be in the same country because you're going to get canceled. You're going to get uh, sure. deplatformed. You know, th this is no longer 
nibbling around the edges with our disputes. This is going right to the heart of things. So what do we do? Uh, Break it up. Uh, Whenever there's any relationship where the two parties do not feel that they have any capacity to resolve disputes, whether it's a husband and wife, siblings, friends, co-workers, uh, the only sane solution, in my opinion, is to peacefully go your separate ways. And I think the smartest thing the Republicans can do is play offense. In the same way the Democrats were just champing at the bit to make Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. a state, which is four automatic Democratic senators, I think Republicans should introduce a bill to expel California from the union. <laughs> you know, I'm that's, not kidding. That's the- because let the corporate press have meltdowns over what the Republicans are doing instead of us spending a year arguing why defunding the police is a bad idea. And I say this as an anarchist. Conservatives are constantly having to react, and it's time for them to go on offense. Well, I agree it's time for them to go on offense. Um, I wish they had done it more, honestly, in the Trump administration with structural changes to government exactly. and to America instead of just saying, oh, look at Trump's awesome tweet. As much as I found a lot of the tweets pretty amusing, that's all they really were. Um, but let's let's tell uh, tell me a little bit. Uh, we're speaking to Michael Malice. Uh, he's the host of You're Welcome, and he's got a book, The Anarchist Handbook. So this sounds like and, and I, I know that you'll probably chafe at this description, but it sounds a little bit like you're, you're going to be teaching people how to make Molotov cocktails. What's actually oh, the book about? Well, there is a chapter on that. Um, so this is basically how to build dynamite. This is a chapter people talk about anarchism increasingly in contemporary terms, both with regard to Antifa and anarchism in a market-based sense. So this is a collection of essays, you know, starting from the 1700s of people who provide alternatives to having the government um, provide services or should exist at all. And one of those chapters is by Johann Most, which was a huge free speech issue in the late 1800s because he published a pamphlet on how to build dynamite and this caused a lot of hand-wringing understandably uh, among civil libertarians so what do you what do you want with this book what are you telling people i mean give us sort of the sense of what what your what's the message of the anarchist handbook uh that government is an irredeemable evil and must be fought at every step of the way uh with through any means necessary now i don't agree with many of the essays in here, of course, they're uh, much more violent and radical than, than I think. But to have uh, people understand the different colors of the black flag of anarchism, it'll be out uh, in a matter of days so we can uh, discuss it. At what what, what uh, is is Antifa truly? Are they really anarchists or are they just cosplay anarchists? Um, I, I mean, really, it's, it's kind of like saying, is Mitt Romney really a Republican? In one sense, no. In one sense, well, he was the nominee of the party. So if they identify as anarchists, they certainly fall within one school of anarchism, which is the hard left revolutionary communist school of anarchism, which I'm not you know, a member of. So what are you a member of? I am. I like it all. I'm a member of Burn It All Down, uh, that these people are irredeemable and that there's no hope through uh, traditional American institutions to save this country, specifically things like democracy, things like the corporate press, things like the universities. I don't think there's turning those ships around. So then what replaces them or where do we go? Freedom. If you tar- if you eliminated socialized health care, right, you're not going to say, well, hospitals are going to cease to exist. Medicine is going to cease to exist. Doctors are going to cease to exist. Uh, or diseases are going to cease to exist. All those things would still happen. They just wouldn't exist as a function of a government 
Monopoly. All right. Well, have to, well, once the book is out, let's have you back on. I will, I will read this one, and I will buy it because I like to actually support the works of people that I have on. So I'll get a copy and, on Amazon, and, uh, and, and I will read it. And we can talk about my, uh, my friend Michael Malice's anarchist inclinations. Sound good? <laughs> talk soon, Buck. All, All right. right. You take care. Bye-bye. I just finished up, uh, I guess now, a 12-part series of investigative reports, all original reporting on critical race theory in schools. And, uh, you know, the stuff that you uncover is, is, is pretty, pretty brutal. It's pretty rough. It's uh, first graders in Cupertino, California, being forced to deconstruct their racial and sexual identities and then rank themselves according to power and privilege. Um, it's fifth grade teachers in Springfield, Missouri, uh, being forced to locate themselves on an oppression matrix. So telling certain teachers by the by their virtue of their birth inborn characteristics, they're oppressors. Others are oppressed. Um, it's, uh, uh, teachers in Philadelphia forcing fifth grade students, uh, to celebrate black communism, simulate an Angela Davis black power rally, um, and then sharing videos, uh, um, that, you know, paint a kind of horrific and very one-sided picture of the United States in a school, in a school in this case, where 87% of students fail to achieve basic literacy. Um, and I could go on and on, you know, my, my reporting is all out there, you can find it, but the, the conclusion is that you have this very strange moment in which um, <clears throat> elite academic institutions, some of the most uh, expensive private schools, are adopting this kind of racial equity m mania at the same time that some of the lowest performing and poorest schools are also adopting it. And That's Chris Rufo, who is one of the people out there doing the most in-depth research on tracking down exactly where and how critical race theory is being taught in schools. You heard him discussing some of it there. Uh, Chris Rufo works at a at a think tank, and I, I've had him on TV many times. We'll have him on, on radio soon. I mean, he's a conservative acti activist and documentary filmmaker and has worked at the Discovery Institute. Um, and and just think of the things that he's talking about there. Having little kids, you know, eight, nine, ten year olds rank themselves on a racial and sexual identity power hierarchy. These kids need to learn how to spell potato. These kids need to learn about the cat in the hat and how to add and multiply. They don't need to be to be brainwashed with the most fashionable left wing Marxist lunacy. It's happening all over the country. This is real. This is ongoing. This is what's uh, what's playing out. And I, I just think that everyone needs to be willing to face up to this reality right now. If we close our eyes and hope for it to go away, it will just get worse. This is only going to deteriorate with time unless there's real pushback. I'm happy to see there are some states that are willing to do something about this and that are starting to take actions. Florida, I think West Virginia is trying to. There, there are states that are are moving to get rid of critical race theory training. This is racial Marxism. That's what critical race theory is. So just make no mistake about it. I mean, it's essentially a communist indoctrination program that uses race instead of class as the means of division and as the way of exacerbating or, or creating and then exacerbating tensions between people who live in the same society. It's awful. It's destructive. Rufo goes on here and gets into how parents can begin to fight back. Play three. You have to wonder 
what does this serve? Whose interests and, and in what capacity? And I think a lot of it with the elite schools is that they want they're excited about the 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 kind of the kind of moral posturing of this. Uh, and then for the really failing school districts like Buffalo, like Philadelphia, uh, like Chicago and some in some parts of Chicago, um, my read on it, it almost seems like a diversion mechanism. These schools uh, where, you know, large majority of, of, of students can, can cannot read and write at basic proficiency by the time they graduate uh, middle school, um, they're shifting the blame to these abstract societal problems um, while ignoring the fact that in many cases these schools have uh, resources, $15,000, $18,000 a year per student, um, and have failed year after year after year to, to educate uh, educate kids in the very basics of what they're going to need to understand in order to make progress. So um, we have this really strange paradox where these institutions that, in my view, are perpetuating inequalities are positioning themselves as the great fighters of inequality. And I, I think it's, it's totally bogus. It's totally fake. Um, it's totally self-serving. It's fascinating, isn't it? What, what Rufo is getting at here is that these schools create a victimology narrative in the children in part because the schools also want to want to present themselves as being on the side of the victims here and therefore be will be above criticism for their abject failures to educate students properly which is what we're really talking about i mean that's that's what's at at central to all this yes the indoctrination is bad but also these schools are failing to teach kids the essential things they need to be able to function well in life and to have you know just some you know basis intellectual basis for engaging successfully with the rest of the world and we're talking about the most baseline education stuff reading writing communicating very very rudimentary math and maybe some science when you're 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, yeah, there's stuff you just have to know. There's stuff that you have to be taught. And it's not where you fall on the LGBTQ plus power matrix. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. It's time for Roll Call. Producer Mark, buddy, how's the packing coming along? You know, day by day, more stuff disappears. I will, I'm just going to tell you something. As somebody who's had to move many, many times in his life, uh, the, part, the part of it that is always, I think people always underestimate, your kitchen takes forever. Correct. We yeah, can't get it all that. done. It's just ridiculous. The kitchen just takes, I mean... Because, you know, if you just throw it all in a box, you're going to break all your crap, right? So you can't do that. And it's just you got to pack carefully and it's piece by piece. Kitchen takes that's actually where like moving company guys, if you do a uh, a, you know, sort of the white glove treatment, you know, moving company situation where they just show up. Some people do this. I've never done this, but I've heard I've heard of it where they'll show up and they'll pack everything for you. The part that that they'll really run up the uh, the tab is is packing up your kitchen it just takes forever and the other thing i always realize is how many books i feel like i don't have that many books in my home and then i move and i realize it's like i have a u-haul just for all my old dusty books yeah i started 
giving away my books because I, I have a Kindle now. And I used to say, I used to be one of those guys who's like, I love the feel of a book. I'm going to buy a book, you know, go to the library, whatever. Now I'm just like, I don't want to lug those around if I have to move again. It's so heavy. Yeah. A, a Kindle's just better, and you can read more books that way. You love the Kindle, especially when it comes time to move your apartment, I will say. I've given away, I've gone over to the Strand Bookstore in Lower Manhattan many times with, I had these two rolling duffel bags just full of books. I mean, I've just gone over there and just done dumps. And and people try to, I, I've, sometimes I, I used to try to sell them and get a, a, now I just, I'm like, take them, just, just take them, sell them to somebody else, give them, I want someone else to be able to, you know, read this book, go for it. And it's, I still have too many books. It is what it is. I so, mean, you do you've already, lot, you, so it makes sense. Yeah. Have you already picked the place where you, uh, where you're moving? Uh, well, yeah, we're, uh, hopefully, uh, closing next week or the week after. We're purchasing nice. a condo. Look at you. Adult, I, I'm adulting almost an adult stuff. now, yeah. Yeah, adulting stuff. You're going to be 30 soon, buddy. Just get ready for that. I'm just most happy that I finally have a home that I will not have to move again for a good period of time. Yeah, yeah. I think I told you I've moved at least 10 times. I think it might be 12 or 13 times since college. I've moved so many times. So, yeah, for jobs, for... Sometimes because they raise the rent on me because it's New York. I mean, I've moved so many times, but in, until pretty recently, I still don't have a lot of stuff. Um, and I, I did have a a colleague um, did describe uh, not long ago a an older male colleague friend of ours, uh, uh, Mark, Mr. Craig. He said uh, that I had like a bachelor. My apartment had a bachelor vibe. And I was like, what does that mean? He's like, well, you don't have anything on your walls. It's yeah. like, well, that is true. Just I do wait. not have I, I don't have artwork or anything like that. I have books which are in all my shelves and on the floor and in piles everywhere. And I got a couch that I love and a bed and a TV. And that's pretty <laughs> that's pretty much my deal. None of that. And radio equipment, of course. So just wait until you make uh, Snow Princess an honest woman. And then all of a sudden you'll have art. There's like stuff, stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ladies, I'm amazed at the things like ladies have. They'll do these things that they'll put them like a little stick that smells nice. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, they use candles a lot. Yeah, yeah. and the little little thing that has the smell that's like, mm, it's not a potpourri, but it's kind of like that. I think a diffuser, it's called. Mm. A diffuser. Yes. I didn't even, that's a thing I've learned about from the ladies. And, and they also, um, they like matching silverware, for example, and placemats. And these yeah. are just things that, I don't know. I never thought of myself as a ruffian, but a uh, little bit barbarous in some of my, my lack of these things. I've gotten better. I'm an old man now. I'm actually like I'm very clean. I will say that, which is good. I There was some uh, study I saw recently that said I think it was in the UK, but I'm sure it's in the US, too, uh, that something like 30 percent of guys change the sheets on their bed once or twice a year, which I was just like, I can't even imagine. Yeah, that sounds gross. Every two weeks, for sure. Pretty much every week, if I can. Without oh. without fail, you, I change my sheets every two weeks. But I think I change all the sheets, everything I bed, every pretty much every Saturday or Sunday. That's like one of my routines, you right? Do that yourself? Yeah. Again, surprised. See, I'm a very self sufficient fellow. I also don't want anyone else in my space, like touching my stuff. That's so true. That's, I, know, I like that's the idea of hiring somebody to clean, but I don't want them to touch my stuff, and you can't have one yeah. without the other. 
I had to become very self-sufficient because I was alone all through my 20s and had very little money. And so I just had to learn to do everything for myself. It was actually a good life experience. It's like, oh, like I have to get good at ironing and laundry and cleaning because there's no one to do that for me. And I can't afford to pay anyone to do any of that stuff. So I have to do it all myself. So I'm actually pretty uh, domestic and I cook. So there you go. You're better than me. I have never lived alone, really, other than, you know, when my wife's away. Right, right. No, yeah. See, that's that's the thing. It's, you know, I I remember I've got my my friends who are uh, married, longtime married friends of mine, guys. You know, they there are certain skills that kind of erode for those guys after a while. Like, oh, I can't. You know, I'm like, what do you mean you can't cook yourself some scrambled eggs? How is that even a thing? Anyway, that's that's getting to the point where you can't cook eggs. That's not a point I'll ever get to. Yeah, no, you got You got to be able to do that. You got to be able to do that. I uh. I, I made um, I will tell you, and this is not this is not just for a commercial. I made moink chicken breast last night, seared it very nicely, both sides. Uh, key key for me. You got to season the chicken up really well. But I will say two steps that people skip and remember moinkbox.com slash buck if you want the best chicken you can get anywhere. But two steps that people skip are you've got to temper the chicken. So you got to let it come down a little bit in time. Not long because chicken is, you know, you don't want it to get creepy crawlies on it. But you want to leave the chicken out for at least 20, 25 minutes. So because if it comes straight out of the fridge, the center of that chicken breast, especially if it's kind of thick, it's going to be very cold. So it's hard to get a, a good cook through the chicken breast without drying it out through overcooking by overcooking the outside to get it to a safe 100, 165 in the middle. I will say I also cook my chicken breast more to like one in the 150 range and then just let it sit and rest because the heat stays in it and then you'll hit that 165 but that's just me so you got to let your your chicken temper a little bit preferably your moink chicken breast everybody and then you've also got to um uh season it before you you know that's that's an important step oh no i'm sorry that wasn't the one i was thinking of though dry it Chicken breast can have a lot of moisture on it, and you don't want that moisture, so you want to dry it out. True of scallops as well, too. Very important step with scallops. You got to pat them dry to get the proper sear, that real caramelization on the outside. All right, now this is where we get hungry, Producer Mark. See, it's late in the show, and we get hungry. That's what happens. Coming soon to a TV near you, Buck Sexton on the Food Network. Yeah. I do. I watch a fair amount of cooking shows. You know, I, I will say it's, it's very... Uh, I feel that that's one of the few things... I have never, and I shouldn't say this out loud because it's probably going to ruin it, I've never been exposed to unnecessary politics watching a cooking show. Sports, yes. Movies, yes. You know, all kinds of reality TV, absolutely. Cooking shows, for the most part, they really are just telling you the, the best way to make that Caesar salad sing, you know? Yeah, even the cooking competition shows, which I watch a lot. Very rarely yeah. political. Actually, I don't think I've ever seen anything political, which is good. Yep, I know. It's like one of the last refuges from politicization. All right, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. If you want to send us a Facebook message on Instagram, which I am on, Buck Sexton, please do follow me there if you're not already. And you can always email us, teambuck at iheartmedia.com. All right, Rick writes in, damn you, producer Mark. I work nights stocking groceries and listen to the Friday podcast. When I got home, I remembered your recommendation of Ted Lasso on Apple TV while I was sipping on my morning whiskey. I was able to download Apple TV on my smart TV. Tell Buck it is easy. Thank you, Rick. 
Couldn't stop watching it. Watched six episodes till I started falling asleep. Might have to watch episode six again. Shields high. On a more serious note, I work for King Supers. We had a pretty serious shooting up in Boulder several weeks ago. It's hard to imagine what would possess someone to do that kind of thing. Um, yeah, Rick, I'm sorry to hear about what happened uh, in, in your community um, up there in, in Colorado. I remember that shooting. And as for uh, going back to your earlier, more lighthearted uh, edition here, apparently you like Ted Lasso a lot, too, which just adds to the Buck should probably watch this Ted Lasso show thing. Yeah, you're really going to love it. That's yeah, all I can say. pretty good. Yeah. I've always thought that uh, Jason Sudeikis is, is pretty talented. He, he was one of the few on SNL that struck me as, in, in the more recent iteration of F SNL, that I thought was actually pretty funny. So yeah, I agree with that. You know, he was good sometimes. All right, Michael. Hey, Buck, I listen to you every night before bed, but also when I feel the pinch of leftism, I need to hear from someone whose mind hasn't been poisoned with all the garbage that these people bring to the table. I'm a conservative New Yorker who ended up in Portland, Oregon, for a relationship that has since dissolved. It has been a real struggle to keep my head while I figure out my next step. Tonight, I had a typical garbage social interaction with know-it-all recent graduates from a leftist Portland university. It's so helpful to be able to come and hear from someone I consider a friend, even though we haven't met. Thank you for doing what you do. Shields high. Well, Michael, I consider everybody who listens to this show a friend, so that's that's reciprocal. And and you all know me quite well. In fact, many of you hear much more from me and interact with me on a more regular basis than pretty much everyone in my life except for maybe my immediate family and my girlfriend. Everyone else is, you know, I hear from once in a while. So we spend a lot. If you listen to the show, we spend a, a lot of time together. And that's really meaningful. And I get to hear from a lot of you or at least read the thoughts of, of many of you here on Roll Call as part of all that. Sorry to hear, Michael, about the relationship. Man, relationship stuff is tough. You know, it's tough. I I really don't. I know that uh, Bill Gates, you know, his marriage is dissolving after 27 years. And everyone's, I don't like to weigh in on that stuff. You know, who knows? You know, maybe things have been really tough for a long time. And, you know, I'm I'm a believer in in marriage as a, as a forever thing, which probably is why I'm, I'm cautious about, you know, that I, I think that's a very important decision. And I probably I could have been married several times in my 20s and it was not the right move for me under the circumstances. Um, and, uh, but you know, so I, I don't judge other people's relationships. I, I judge bad conduct, right? So somebody who's, well, you know, I wanted an open relationship and I, I went to an orgy and like my wife has a problem with it. And I guess we, yeah, that she should have a problem with it. Right. I mean, I, I judge bad conduct, but just when I see that someone's relationship, uh, like Bill Gates is dissolving you know, his marriage of almost 30 years, I'd say, look, I mean, it's, it strikes me as just kind of sad, but I don't I don't jump on that stuff because I, I think that relationships are uh, it's it's just challenging. It's challenging for a lot of reasons. Um, and it requires work and it requires patience. Uh, as for Portland. Yeah, there's a lot of lunatics running around Portland. There's no question about that. So I'm sorry that you got to deal with that. But you always have, Michael, you always have the Freedom Hut. We're here waiting for you. We got your back and we'll uh we'll always be there for you the end of the day first thing in the morning whatever you need my man just turn on the podcast all right next here we have eric in our roll call who writes buck just an update from freedom land here in idaho we've been hovering around a whopping 10 to 30 cases a day in a 250,000 metropolitan area no mask mandate open schools not a large city but still 
100% capacity bars and restaurants, all are probably really at 150%. Oddly enough, no large outbreaks. Californians are moving here in droves. You know the reasoning, but these super smart people in charge just can't explain it. Dumb rednecks with a low COVID rate. Who knew? Shields high. Yeah, Eric, the, the results are in. The lockdowners were wrong. That's really the... I mean, they'll never admit it ever, 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 because, oh, my gosh, could you imagine? They'll never admit that they were, but they were wrong. The lockdowns were the wrong thing to do. And and I think that anybody who's looking honestly at the data and at the history of what's gone on here would come to that conclusion. But there's there's not just there's ego and power at stake over this. The ego of all the people who are listen to the science and I listen to Fauci and I mask up twice, especially when I'm outside by myself. Uh, those people don't want to have to say out loud, wow, I'm not nearly as smart as I thought I was. And maybe I should have been nicer to Buck when he was trying to tell me the truth and not bend the knee to the mob. But anyway, uh, I don't think any libs are really thinking that, but I just had to throw that in there. And yeah. No, they're never going to admit it. They're never going to change their tune. Wanda. Fish Called Wanda is a good movie. You ever see it, Producer Mark? Have you seen WandaVision? I, did, I don't know what that is. No, it's a, one of the new Marvel series on Disney+. Plus. Oh, is it good? Uh, I enjoyed it. It's a little out there. It's not the same as, you know, a Marvel movie. It, it definitely tells an interesting story. Okay. Interesting. Fair enough. All right. Wanda writes, hey, Buck, I'm totally with you about getting rid of the masks for everyone. Yet I am most worried about my kids having to wear masks at school all day. Our kids are suffering having to wear masks for seven hours per day. Then after school, for many activities, including some sports, the kids wear masks for hours more. It kills me this is happening, and I've tried to fight this simply so my kids can breathe. I've contacted the school district superintendent, principals, the local health district, and the governor, as it is his mandate. What can we do to make the masking mandate in schools actually stop? In addition to the negative repercussions from masking, I'm most concerned the masking is going to be tied to children getting vaccinated. So we need the masking to stop before that happens. I can't believe this is our reality. Thanks for your com- thanks for your common sense reporting and discussions. Wanda, thank you for writing in. I, I don't have an answer for you other than keep the pressure on. Keep fighting. Keep pushing. Have your voice heard. That's all you can do. Because you know, the, the leftists, it's like a religion for them, this whole mask thing. And we've just got to keep pushing. Patrick writes, hey, Buck, the other day on podcast, you mentioned you're like to tell President Biden to go uh, blank, blank. It got me thinking what a great T-shirt that would be. Not sure if you have the swag, but it could mean so many things to the uninitiated. It could be, hey, listen to Buck. Um, Shields high. Yeah, Patrick, we're thinking about T-shirts and stuff, but I still owe you guys a multi part two podcast. See you multi part two. So I, I got I got some busy work I got to get to here. So we're on that and more. So uh, just stay with me and we'll, we'll get to all of it. Thank you all so much for uh, for joining me here on the Buck Sexton Show. Please do pass the buck. Tell a friend this week. One person. Just give me one, folks. You all got one person. Email or text them a link to download the podcast and turn them into a Buck Sexton listener forever. Back tomorrow. Shields high.